more than that, it is a genealogy with the hardest words to read in it. There's a lot of repetition in it, so I don't know if we will read every word. But Genesis 36 is the genealogy of Esau. Um, and the plan is more than Esau had these kids. It's really a summary of the Edomites up to, let's say, the time of the kings, roughly, just to say simplicity. Um, and we'll see why, why it's here and what the author is trying to do. Let's start here. It is uh, a fulfillment of a promise. Uh, you remember that uh, when Rebecca was pregnant, she had the two kids, um, Esau and Jacob. And the promise was, in your womb are two nations. And here, we've been seeing the unfolding of the nation of Israel, Jacob becoming Israel. Uh, but before we see that unfolding drama, which will take generations, hundreds of years, climaxing in David and Solomon, um, we see the uh, nation of Edom, the Edomites, who, of course, are the descendants of Esau. Uh, and so what you're going to get in chapter 36 is basically a, a genealogical overview of them becoming a nation, how that happens. Um, so let's start here with Esau's three wives. The one word to look here is marriage. Esau has three wives, and you, you see it there starting in verse 1. Again, we'll do some skipping because I can't pronounce all the words, although I will pretend like I can. Um, and I just want to skip the highlights. We are uh, slow on time, that, or low on time. That's, that's perfectly fine. These are the generations of Esau that is Edom. You're going to notice Edom is mentioned, I think, five times in this chapter. It's wanting to, to train us to see Esau and the Edomites. Um, if we did a full study of the Edomites in the Bible, we, we would be here for quite a while. Um, but uh, here is that phrase, this is the book of generations. Uh, that is a common way to open up a gene genealogy. It also it often opens up a new section of Genesis. So if you wanted to divide a Genesis, it, it's already done the work for you. And it does it through these genealogies. Um, and so just, just a point of reference there. Remember, genealogies have a number of purposes with them in Genesis and the Bible in general. They summarize entire histories. The Edomites, is, this is a good example of one. A lot of things happen from gen one generation to another. Think about it. If, if uh, um, on the Craig side, uh, uh, which is dad's side of the family, they came to America uh, in the uh, 1700s. If I gave you the genealogy from uh, Tolliver Craig to me and just gave you the genealogy, right, a lot of history, that covers a whole lot of history, right? Um, so it is, is here. They also help explain national identities. So, for example, um, when um, Elimelech, in the story of Ruth, uh, his son marries a Moabite woman, Ruth. Um, well, we should know, well, the Moabites, the Moabites come from Lot and his daughter. So we know that Lot is related to Abraham, but Lot does this thing, right? It's pretty grotesque. And, and so what you see is an Israelite, the son of Abraham, with a uh, daughter of Lot, right? So, so we, we, we put these things here. You come in the New Testament, and we start to see, see these stories. When Jesus talks to a Samaritan, well, that word has a history behind it, right? Um, America was like that, weren't we? Um, if, if you were an Irish Catholic in the 1950s and 60s, did that mean something? Yeah, you made your money off of booze, right, in the 1920s. That's what that meant, right? Am I getting it right there or something like that, right? So when Kennedy, an Irish Catholic, runs for the presidency, well, that meant something. Nixon was a Quaker. That meant something, right? 
Um, and because America was, of course, a nation of, of immigrants. One last thing that this genealogy and all genealogies show is remember that the broad narrative of the Bible, we call it the battle of the seeds. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So what we're looking for is the seed of the woman. And what we have found is every time we think we found this messianic figure, Seth or Noah or Shem or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and Moses, they're all kind of scoundrels, aren't they? It's as if the seed of the serpent has once again um, uh, 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 bruised the heel of the seed of the woman. And so we're looking for this ultimate savior. Well, here is the seed of the serpent right here, Esau. And we purposely are called to contrast Esau's lineage here in chapter 36. And in chapter 37 starts the story of Joseph, which is Jacob's lineage. And we're to see the, the contrast, the nation of Edom and the nation of Israel coming out of here. Um, now, verses 2 to 5, his three wives are named. Um, I'll throw these up here. We don't have time to explore it. Um, there's some debate. Um, th at three different occasions, his wives are named, and they don't always match. But what it seems like is some of his wives went by multiple names. Like Bashmot, I think, is in all three, or at least in two of them or something like that. Uh, but here you have all three are named, but not all three of them are, are named elsewhere. So it's a whole thing. We don't have time to get into it. But he has three wives. And in Genesis, bigamy and polygamy is evidence of the fall. Because in Eden, two become one. Three cannot become one. If you don't believe me, read the story of Jacob. The two wives do not get along. And the two wives really become four wives. And is a mess. Um, and look at what's going to happen to the Joseph as a result. Um, so, so when you see multiplicity in the home, that's a problem. Lamech, a, a descendant of Cain, was the first bigamist in the Bible. And that guy was a monster. Right? So, uh, um, well, uh, ultimately what we see is Esau married a Hittite, a Hivite, and an Ishmaelite. All those names are significant, particularly Ishmaelite. Um, the Hittites are descendants of Heth, who is the son of Canaan. You remember, Canaan was cursed by Noah after the whole instance with Ham uncovering his father's nakedness. We talked about that some last week. I don't want to go back over it. The Hivites also are descendants of Canaan, or of Canaan, rather. And the Ishmaelites are descendants of the offspring of Abraham and Hagar. So these details are important. What did Esau go do? He went to go do what Abraham and Isaac told their sons not to do, marry Canaanite girls. Now, remember that when this, these stories are being told, Moses and the crew are in the wilderness. Where are they heading? To Canaan. What are these stories telling you? Don't marry Canaanite girls. Don't intermarry with them. One of the ways that, you, that, that that's being told is through this narrative, this genealogy. Esau went and married them. And guess what? For the rest of your history, you're going to have problems with the Edomites, as we'll see, right? So don't marry the Canaanite girls. They will lead you astray. Um, he became like them. Um, Esau migrates again to uh, verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all of his beasts, all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. 
He went to the land away from his brother Jacob. That's an important detail. Uh, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourns could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country Seir. Esau is Edom, right? You remember that's twice already. Now I want you to notice Esau is heading east. In Genesis, east is away from the garden. Now what you'll find is on three occasions in Genesis, brothers separate. And in each occasion, the son of promise stays in Canaan. The one that was not the son of promise leaves Canaan. The first one is Abraham and Lot. Did this story sound like Abraham and Lot? You remember the story of Abraham and Lot? They couldn't get along because their property's too big. They couldn't agree on uh, what fields their sheep should graze in. So they had to separate. Lot looked over and he thought he saw the Garden of Eden or what looked like the Garden of Eden. And he went east of the promised land. And then we get uh, Ishmael and Isaac. Remember, Ishmael is, is excommunicated. He's exiled, and he, 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 he leaves. Um, that's Genesis 25. And then here you get Esau and Jacob. And this is a way the, the writer is telling us who the son of promise is, because he stays in the land of promise. Um, and at the same time, we see that both brothers are blessed. One of the questions of this text, application of this text is, what do you do with God's blessings in your life? Jacob, for all of his faults, chooses to worship Yahweh. Esau takes the blessings of God. Now remember, Esau had his blessings revoked by Jacob. Yet he's blessed by God, and he takes it and he, 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 he doesn't worship the only true God. He intermarries, becomes a pagan. Right? God blesses both men. One does so with gratitude. The other squanders it. So that's marriage. And then we get lineage in uh, verses 9 to, to 14. Esau has five sons. And through them, the ones listed are ten grandsons. Remember, ten is a number of completions, like the number seven. Um, so uh, it's, it's easy to get lost in this. I only want to highlight a few of the names. Um, you can read all of them yourself. Um, and have fun with it. Um, his sons, I think, are Eliphaz, Ru Ruel, Jayush, Jalem, and Korah. Um, so, Ohilamabama is the one that had three kids, and then Bashmat had one, and Ada had one. That, that will be on, on your test. Eliphaz, in verse 11, notice he had a son, so this is Esau's grandson, named Timon. Timon becomes a place name in the region of Edom. So Timon will show up later. It is a location you can see here in, in, in the text. People from Timon are known as Timonites. You can see that down in verse 34 of this chapter. Now this is interesting. One of Job's friends is a guy named Eliphaz the Timonite. Now notice here, Eliphaz had a son named Timon who became the Timonites. Job, whenever that story took place, and that's a matter of debate, and it's a bigger debate when it is written. That, that it gets a whole can of worms. But as a guy named Eliphaz the Timonite, so it's both the father and the son and, and one of Job's friends. You know the one that says, well, the reason you're suffering is because you've you got secret sin? Eliphaz the, the, the Timonite. Right here is the introduction of that. Um, to go on down, um, verse 12 
Eliphaz has a concubine, which is not a good thing in Genesis. And uh, her name is Timna, not to confuse her with Timon. Right? It's what I've done all week. Trying to figure this out. Timna, the concubine of Eliphaz, they have a son named Amalek. Ever heard of the Amalekites? Here it is. Here's the genesis of it. Now, notice that he is the offspring of a concubine, which in the eyes of Israel makes him of lower class. Right? So, so when they go up against the Amalekites, they're looking at him and saying, you're not just an enemy because you are of Esau. So they're related in one sense, they're cousins, but you're of the line of Esau, the seed of the serpents, and serpentine language associated with him. But you are the seed of, not of the woman, the woman of promise, you're seed of a concubine. Uh, now, Israel has heroes who are descendants of concubines. One of them is in Judges, Jephthah, uh, or, or a prostitute, not a concubine, but a prostitute. Anyway, so... Um, um, they are a problem in the wilderness uh, wanderings, the Amalekites. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on the journey and attacked all who were lagging behind, uh, women and children. Uh, they had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies, shalom. When God gives you shalom, rest, peace, um, God will give that to you from all your enemies around you in the land he's given you um, you will blot out the name of Amalek. Do not forget what they did to you. Here, here's, here's the introduction to the Amalekites. Um, remember that King Agai, Agag was an Amalekite? Remember that Saul was supposed to kill them all? And he kept King Agag, and Samuel comes and hacks Agag to pieces. Quote the Bible. Haman, in the story of Esther, the guy that tried to wipe out the Jews, he was a descendant of King Agag. Agag was an Amalekite. Here's the genesis of that story. Go all the way back to, to Esau. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's enough for the sons and, and grandsons. We, we could do more, but um, uh, the names are quite difficult to, to pronounce. Um, in verses 15 to 19, we get influence, marriage, family, influence. And this is the idea. Is it starts out with well, he's the patriarch of a family and as they grow they grow in power and influence so you start with a patriarch now you're moving the chiefs this is something a little more and i think the idea here and i could be wrong is much as when um i just watched a, a, a really good bi a, a documentary on george washington that when the constitution was brought we think of it as the united states came together no 13 colonies came together, and those 13 colonies saw themselves as borderline autonomous and sovereign. Right? Some had greater – Virginia was the most powerful, right? Uh, so that's why Washington being Virginian was for this was kind of important, Jefferson and all that. Um, but they saw themselves as almost independent city-states. They were always ready to fight each other. They all agreed that Britain had to, had to go. But some of them wanted to get rid of each other, too, right? I mean, the, the Constitution really is a general miracle uh, that, that that compromise was able to figure out. Um, and so I think that's the idea here is they're going to go off into clans, if you will, tribes. The story of the Edomites is going to be mirrored with the Israelites. Right? That's one thing this chapter shows. And so here we get chiefs, clan heads, if you will. Um, 
and um, that's introduced verse 15. Um, they become mightier and mightier. A lot of these names are repeated from the previous section. So I don't want to just reread that um, because it's, I get tongue-tied as it is. And then to reread it, you're thinking, wow, can this get any more boring? And I'm trying to keep it from getting more boring. So let's move on. Uh, verse 20 is rule. So we go from influence to uh, – or I skip, did I skip one? Yeah. yeah. It's supposed to be conquest. That word should be conquest. Forgive me. This is verses 20 to, to 30. Um, and these are the chief, uh, again, the emphasis is, is on chiefs. Um, let me see how much of this I actually want to read. Um, verse 20, seer the Horites. You, you notice the emphasis is going to be on the Horites. The inhabitants of the land, they name them Lodan, Shoban, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of seer in the land of Eden. And then the sons of Lodan were so on and so forth. So the emphasis is going to be on the, on the Horites. Um, here, here, here's, here's what we need to see, okay? So when they go into Seir, there's already people there, right? What happens is the Edomites intermarry with the Horites. And as a result, they end up uh, uh, getting rid of the Horites. Okay? So notice the story. There's already people in their land. They're able to really take over. Much in the same way, when Israel comes to the promised land, there's already people there. Israel comes in, they're able to, to deal with that. Um, so they did it through intermarrying. So now you have Canaanites with, with the uh, Horites, the, the Edomites and the Canaanites, Horites. Um, so um, again, Jacob is told, don't do this, as the slaughter of the Shechemites made it very clear. This also provides some historical backdrop to the destruction of the Horites. Deuteronomy 2, uh, I didn't put it up there. I just skipped this section for some reason. Deuteronomy 2.12, the Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. So the Bible wants us to see the parallels. What the Edomites do in, among the Horites, Israel will do among the Canaanites. Um, and uh, that's really what it is that we're, 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 we're supposed, supposed to see here. Okay, verse 31 to 39 is rule. So uh, they go from conquest to rule. Um, and now what we get in starting verse 31 is a king list. We get several of these in Genesis. Um, verse 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Notice we've already covered hundreds of years through genealogy, just all right, they're in the land. Okay, so Esau goes over there. They intermarry. It takes generations. They knock out the Horites. So they go from uh, chiefs and clans to now a kingdom. They're going to have kings coming from here. Uh, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned in Israel. Now, let's pause there. This is a verse that causes a lot of problems when it comes to dating the writing of Genesis. So, let me give you just a brief rundown. You can read this a number of ways. If you hold to exclusively, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and only Moses wrote it, you interpret this to say, Moses was well aware that one day kings would come to Israel. After all, he tells what a godly Jewish king would look like in Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter 15, 16, something like that. And so here, it makes sense. 
Well, there's kings in, in, in Edom before there's kings in Israel. Most see that... Made, now, on, on the more liberal side, they would say Moses didn't write it. He was illiterate or something like that. You know, Hebrew didn't exist, whatever it is. And so later writers came and told the story of Israel. And they would say it happened during Babylonian captivity. So they're looking away. My position, if you want to know, is I believe Moses Big M wrote it. I also believe Moses Little M wrote it. So I do believe there were later editors who came in because what we see uh, is little notes. Um, so like Bethlehem. Well, we get both its original name, Ephrathah, and we get the Bethlehem name. In the Exodus story, it says that they worked in Ramesses, which would have been its modern name when that was put there, not its original name. Probably called Avaz. So I do think there were later people who came in and say, well, this, this is where you'll find it. And we've seen several times where it, it'll, it'll say, this is where Rebecca was buried, right by that well, something like that. So that's my position. But this is one of those little phrases before there were uh, kings in Israel that does create some, some questions. Uh, so if you ever studied the historicity of Genesis or the dating of it, this is one of those passages that will come up. But that's neither here, here nor there. Um, this is a classic king list um, uh, from, 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 from uh, common in the ancient world. Most of these names are lost to history. However, I want you to go down to verse 32. Tell me if a name sounds familiar, okay? Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his son, city being Din-Haba. All right? So did the name um, Bela, the son of Beor, sound familiar? What if it is Balaam, the son of Beor? You know, the guy who, who was supposed to put a curse on the Israel while they're in the wilderness, Book of Numbers? And he ended up putting a, a, a blessing. Oh, by the way, this is free. We know almost without a shadow of doubt that Balaam, son of Beor, was a real person. We have found evidence of him. Archaeology had found it. Um, I can give you the details if you really want to know. The archaeologists have found an inscription with uh, not, not a Jewish inscription. This would be a different inscription from Canaanite origin around the time of the Exodus that says Balaam, son of Beor, was known as a, a, a guy that would put curses on people. It's almost like we read about him in the Bible. I mean, the details, it is parallel what we get. It's really fascinating. But that's free. Um, there seems to be no connection between Bala, the son of Beor, and Balaam, son of Beor. But I think that's worth, worth mentioning. However, I think the big idea here is with this, these kings. You can read the, the list uh, if you want. I think the idea of the kings is to say, um, remember that Esau and Jacob, the story is the younger or the older will serve the younger. We've seen that throughout Genesis, haven't we? Um, 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 Isaac was younger than Ishmael, for example. And later, Joseph is younger than the others. And it's the older brothers who are bowing down to Joseph. Here, we've seen Jacob the younger, we're being told, is going to be greater than Esau. But in the story, it looks like Esau's the greater. But we're getting this history, and what we're supposed to see, particularly on this end of the empty tomb, is to say God did fulfill his promises. 
kings did come to Israel and they conquered the Edomites. So let me give you just a few examples of this. 1 Samuel 14, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all of his enemies on the side. Here they are. Moab, well, we know their story. It's the son of Lot and his daughter. Uh, the Ammonites show up in Genesis as well. Um, was Ammon the son of Lot as well? Okay, so this is, there you go. We know that story. Edom, what's Esau? Uh, kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. Philistines are uh, from, from the sea. They're a huge problem in the Judges story. Okay? And we know Philistines existed. I don't know much about Zobah. But notice that. The, is Saul, the, is, is he the seed of the woman, right? Right? Because, because what is he doing? Is he's going to expand the border of Israel, the promised land, by defeating Israel's enemies. Well, we know what happens with Saul. Here comes David. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. Sounds like Saul. What are those nations? Edom's the first one. Moab, Ammonites, Philistines, Amalek. Huh. Where have I read about him? So the Amalekites against the descendants of the Edomites, Esau. Uh, the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. I'm going to have to look up Zobah. I have no idea who that is. David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. That's where you go when you have your watermelon. Um, then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. All the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. What's the emphasis here? The nations, he's, he's extended the border. Is he the promised king? He's the younger of the brothers, and they're having to serve him because he's king. And here he is going up against the Edomites. One more, Solomon. The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Hadad the Edomite. Well, of course it's an Edomite. Right? It's what we expected. He was the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. Well, what do we get here in Genesis 36? We get, oh no, the Edomites have become mighty. What are the Israelites going to do? They're just little brethren. What are we supposed to read here? God remained faithful to the Israelites. Till one day, the son of a woman who struggled to have children anointed King Saul who slew the Edomites. He then slew the younger brother of, of, of all these guys, David, who became the royal priest. And he slayed the Edomites. It doesn't look like God's keeping his promises here with Jacob. He's a sojourner in a strange land. But God's providence, God's promises will, will be fulfilled. One, uh, one last part. Uh, go down to verse 40. Um, I want us to look at two brothers here. Verse 40. Uh, These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs. Now, a lot of repetition here, what we've already seen. Timna, Alva, Jepheth, Ohilabamama. Uh, you can't say it either. Um, Ella, Penan, Kenes, Temen, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom. He is Esau. When you see Esau, think the Edomites. When you see the Edomites, think Esau. Read the book of Ob Obadiah if we had time. Okay? Where he just says, you're gone. I'm done with you. 
according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Note the language of possession. Chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, the land of Canaan. 37, verse 1 ends the Esau narrative. It opens up the Joseph narrative. So what, what, what do we do with this? We end with the achievements of Esau. He was fruitful. He multiplied despite surrendering his birthright and inheritance. From him come clans, kings, and power. And the parallels between what they did and later the Israelites do is on purpose. Israel will follow a similar pattern. You get the sons of Jacob in Genesis. They go through a period of slavery. And then what you get are clans. You get the judges, right? And then you get kings. And they take possession of the land. It's the Canaanites for Israel, the Horites for the Edomites. But compare the Edomites of chapter 36 with Jacob in chapter 37. Esau is portrayed as the patriarch of kings, conquerors, and mighty men. This word possession in its verbal form is first used in the narrative of the birth of Esau and Jacob. You remember when, when uh, Jacob tried to hold on? He, he literally tried to take possession of Esau. So in, in, in what we get here is the story opens up with Jacob trying to take possession. What's the story of Jacob? He tries to take possession of everything Esau has. He takes his birthright, his inheritance, all that. And then the rest of the Jacob story is him giving it back to Esau. You remember, he's nervous. Esau's going to come kill him when he comes back from Catamaran. So he gives him all these possessions, right? Well, so the story ends with Esau taking possession. So you get to the end, you're thinking, well, everything Jacob wanted, he's lost. God has not kept his promise. But as we've seen in our study of the rest of the Old Testament, particularly Saul, David, and Solomon, and later the prophets, Obadiah and others, is that actually Israel takes possession and does exactly what Jacob wanted initially. So if you compare them, uh, Jacob is a sojourner living by faith. But from the perspective of man, Jacob looks weak and insignificant. From the perspective of man, uh, um, or from the perspective of God, Jacob becomes mighty as the patriarch of Israel. The question is, is, is what perspective do we look at it from? From man's perspective, Jacob is just this, this little guy. He's the little brother. Esau's mighty. Look at these kings. But from the eyes of God, who's the Lord of history, he sees the broad picture. That's providence. Not just a little bit. One of the illustrations I love is that of pointillism in art. And I've shared this before. Pointillism is a portrait done with little dots, colored dots. So that up close, the dot looks insignificant. It's just a dot on the page. But as you back up, you start to see it's actually a masterpiece. It's a matter of perspective. If we're just looking at the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau looks to be the mightier one. It looks like God was faithful to Esau, not Jacob. When you take a step back, you see, actually, the Bible's telling a very different story. We Christians have to remember this in our own history. We often see America as the peak of Christianity. This is as good as it's going to get. We're Jerusalem. But then we start wondering, how come we look like Babylon? Because we've only zeroed in on the dot. God sees the generations. God sees the end of history. And this is where it's going. So, um, I 
think that is at least a, a, a place to, to go with, with this text. There's other things we, we could say, um, but uh, let me just point out one little uh, detail. I didn't put it in my notes, so my, my reference may be wrong. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Now, Matthew 1 begins with a genealogy. A few years ago, we went through that for weeks, bored y'all to tears. Um, what's interesting is that we have a genealogy to start off Matthew. And that connects us with that broad narrative. Hundreds of years are covered in that genealogy. We highlighted some of those names, the history behind that. And then, of course, Jesus is born of a virgin in chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, now, at this point, he's a toddler, probably two years old, something like that. Born in Bethlehem, Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Now, Herod is of what location? What is he known as? He's an Idumean, right? That's the word you get in the New Testament. What in the world does that mean? It is the Greek word for Edomite. Now, what is Herod about to do in this chapter? Well, he meets the Magi from the east. They're not going to the east. They're coming from the east, which means they're coming back to the garden. Here is the promised land, land of Israel, Canaan. So the wise men are coming from the east, but they meet an Edomite. This is one of the reasons why the Jews did not like Herod. He was not one of them. He was an Edomite. He's of Esau, not of Jacob. He's not a son of promise. You are no king over us, they would say. So you see why King Herod is there. Uh, he's basically a puppet king. Very well connected to Caesar and all that. Um, the Israelites are down in, in, in Judah saying, we need a king. But there is already a king. So when Jesus later goes before Herod's son, another Herod, you have one who claims to be a king of the Jews, Herod. One claim to be king of the Jews, Jesus. But right here, you have the Magi running into an Edomite, and they have a question. Show me the king of the Jews. Herod panics. But what does Herod do? Herod says, I'll fix that. I got fooled. I was deceived. Seems like Herod's great, 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 however many great grandfather, he too was deceived by an Israelite named Jacob. So what does he do? He chooses violence, like Esau does. He chooses violence against the Israelites. But what kind of violence does Herod choose? He chooses the violence of Pharaoh, where he will seek to slaughter every young male child. But what does God do? He delivers Jesus. Son of Judah, son of Jacob. And then we get in Matthew, read it there in chapter 2. After Herod dies, he brings Jesus back from Egypt, and it says, quote Hosea, out of, out of Egypt I called my son. And what does Jesus come and do? He comes to conquer the Edomites. The Edomites couldn't, couldn't stop him. Pharaoh, the serpent, couldn't stop him. And in chapter 2, you get the story with Herod. Chapter 3, he's baptized. 
much as Israel went through the Red Sea, so he goes through the waters, and he goes immediately into the wilderness where he is tempted by the serpent. Not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And he comes out, and the angels minister to him. And here comes the kingdom of the king. And it climaxes at the cross, where it looks like the seed of the serpent has won. Until three days later, Christ is risen from the dead. All of that is right here in chapter 36. Because we're not supposed to see Jacob hiding in the tent. We're supposed to see Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's the beauty of it. Genealogies are not boring if we read it as we're supposed to. It's the story of the Bible, not just of one family. Okay, we survived. Survived, okay? Yeah, Don. 